choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 262 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Commander Jim Lovell. James Arthur Lovell Jr. was born in Cleveland, Ohio on March 25, 1928. Lovell was the only child of his mother, Blanche, who was of Czech descent, and his father, who died in a car accident in 1933. For a couple of years, he and his mother resided with a relative in Terre Haute, Indiana. But Blanche raised her only child in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There, Jim went to Juneau High School and became an Eagle Scout. As a child, Lovell was interested in rocketry and building flying models. From the fall of 1946 to the spring of 1948, he attended the University of Wisconsin at Madison for two years under the Flying Midshipman Program, where he joined the Alpha Phi Omega fraternity. While Lovell was attending pre-flight training in the summer of 1948, the Navy was beginning to make cutbacks in the program's and cadets were under a great deal of pressure to transfer out. There were even worries that some or most of the pilots that graduated wouldn't have pilot billets to fill. Of course, this threat persisted until the later outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. Lovell applied and was accepted to attend the United States Naval Academy in the fall of 1948. Lovell attended Annapolis for the full four years, graduating as an ensign in the spring of 1952 with a Bachelor of Science degree. Lovell then went to flight training at Pensacola Naval Air Station from October 1952 to February 1954. As a young boy, my early love was aviation. I built model airplanes, I'd uh, try to fly some, and read aviation books. In high school, I thought rocket technology would be very interesting. Then uh, I enrolled in a ROTC program at the University of Wisconsin, and from there, I uh, went down to uh, Pensacola to start flight training and managed to get an appointment to the Naval Academy and graduated there in 1952. Also in 1952, Lovell married Marilyn Lily Gerlich, the daughter of Lily and Carl Gerlich. The two were high school sweethearts at Juneau High School in Milwaukee. Marilyn initially was hesitant about dating Jim because he was two years older than her, but the two became inseparable after their first date. 
She transferred from Wisconsin State Teachers College to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., so she could be near him while he was training in Annapolis. They married after his graduation from the Naval Academy. The Lovells had four children, Barbara, born in 1953, James in 1955, Susan in 1958, and Jeffrey in 1966. Due to her husband often being absent from the home because of training and missions, Marilyn was in charge of taking care of the household and the four children. Upon completion of pilot training, Lovell served at sea flying F-2H Banshee night fighters from 1954 to 1957. In January 1958, he entered a six-month test pilot training course at what was then the Naval Air Test Center, now it is the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, at Naval Air Station, Patuxent River, Maryland, along with Pete Conrad and Wally Sherall. While there, he served as program manager for the F-4H Phantom Fighter. Lovell graduated first in his class. I got my wings, I think it was February of 54, I uh, sent to a squadron. Turned out that this squadron developed and sent to various aircraft carriers uh, night fighter teams. And so I became uh, on a team called Team Jig, and we deployed on the Shangri-La, went to uh, Westpac about uh, 1955-1960. Finally came back, and after I got back to the squadron, I applied for and was accepted uh, to test pilot school at Patuxent River, Maryland. Later that year, Lovell, Conrad, and Sherall became three of 110 military test pilots selected as potential astronaut candidates for Project Mercury. Sherall went on to become one of the Mercury 7, but Lovell and Conrad failed to make the cut for medical reasons. Lovell, because of a temporarily high bellyrubin count in his blood, and Conrad for refusing to take the second round of invasive medical test. Lovell continued for four years at Pax River as a test pilot and instructor, using the call sign Shaky, a nickname given to him by Pete Conrad. In 1962, NASA needed a second group of astronauts for the Gemini and Apollo programs. Lovell applied again and this time was accepted into NASA Astronaut Group Number 2, as was Pete Conrad. NASA, at that time, was looking at putting a man in space, and I became one of the second group of astronauts with NASA. I managed to get into four very interesting flights during my career, Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8, of course, and Apollo 13. I believe that I was the first person to go into space four times by the time I retired. Lovell was first selected as backup pilot for Gemini 4, which put him in position for his first space flight three missions later, as pilot of Gemini 7, with command pilot Frank Borman in December 1965. This flight set an endurance record of 14 days in space and also was the target vehicle for the first space rendezvous 
with Gemini 6A. Lovell was later scheduled to be the backup command pilot of Gemini 10, but after the deaths of Gemini 9 Prime crew Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, Lovell replaced Tom Stafford as backup commander of Gemini 9A. This again positioned Lovell for his second flight and first command of Gemini 12 in November 1966 with pilot Buzz Aldrin. This four-day, 59-revolution flight brought the Gemini program to a successful close. Because of the work I was in, I had to be in very good shape. And I started doing that years ago by uh, running. And then as I got into uh, NASA, I also became the uh, consultant of the president on physical fitness and sports. And that, of course, led itself to keeping myself in shape, plus uh, try to make everybody else in the United States in shape, too. In June 1967, President Lyndon Johnson appointed Captain Lovell as his consultant for physical fitness and sports. When the Physical Fitness Council was revised under President Nixon in 1970, Captain Lovell was assigned the additional duty of chairman of the council. After 11 years of performing his dual role with the council, he relinquished these positions in 1978. However, he is still a consultant to the council. In the Apollo program, Lovell was first selected as command module pilot on the backup crew for Apollo 9, along with Neil Armstrong as commander and Buzz Aldrin as lunar module pilot. Apollo 9 was planned as a high apogee Earth orbital test of the lunar module, but Lovell later replaced Mike Collins as command module pilot on the Apollo 9 prime crew when Collins needed to have surgery for a bone spur on his spine. This change reunited Lovell with his Gemini 7 commander, Frank Borman. But delays in construction of the first lunar module prevented it from being ready in time to fly on Apollo 8, which was planned as a low-Earth orbit test. NASA then decided to swap the Apollo 8 and Apollo 9 prime and backup crews in the flight schedule so that the crew trained for the low-orbit test could fly it as Apollo 9 when the lunar module would be ready. The original Apollo 9 high-apogee Earth orbit test was changed to a lunar orbital flight now called Apollo 8. A scriptwriter couldn't have done a better job launching on the 21st of December to orbit the moon on Christmas Eve. To launch at the end of a very turbulent year, you know, with the Vietnam Wars going on and there were riots, it was really a bad year. Uh, to end the year for the United States on a positive note, you know, just to do things that everybody could be proud of without having a lot of controversy going on. And then to see the Earth as it really is, be able to photograph the Earth to show the people what they really have, uh, I think it was uh, very significant uh, for Apollo 8. Couldn't have happened at a better time. And that was a very good flight, too. I mean, everything worked. Borman, Lovell, and William Anders were launched on December 21, 1968, 
Apollo 8 was the first manned spacecraft to be lifted into near-Earth orbit by the 7.5 million pound thrust of a Saturn V launch vehicle. And Lovell, with fellow crewmen Frank Borman and William Anders, became the first humans to leave Earth's gravitational influence and the first to travel to the moon. As command module pilot, Lovell served as the navigator, using the spacecraft's built-in sextant to determine its position by measuring star positions. This information was then used to calculate required mid-course corrections. The craft entered lunar orbit on Christmas Eve and made a total of 10 orbits, most of them circular, at an altitude of approximately 70 miles or 110 kilometers, for a total of 20 hours. The crew broadcast black and white television pictures of the lunar surface back to Earth, and Lovell took his turn with Borman and Anders in reading a passage from the biblical creation story in the book of Genesis. They began their return to Earth on Christmas Day with a rocket burn made on the moon's far side out of radio contact with Earth. For this reason, the lunar orbit insertion and the trans-Earth injection burns were the two most tense moments of this first lunar mission. When contact was re-established, Lovell was the first to announce the good news, saying, Please be informed, there is a Santa Claus. The crew splashed down safely on Earth December 27th. Apollo 8 has to be the high point of my career. On December 24th, we orbited the moon for the very first time, and we looked back there and saw the ancient old craters on the far side. The vast monument up here on the moon is awe-inspiring. The most impressive thing we saw was the Earth. I, for some reason, put my thumb up to the window and realized that I could hide the Earth behind my thumb. And I thought, Everything I ever knew, everything that, that exists to my knowledge is behind my thumb. Lovell was next backup commander of Apollo 11, and he was scheduled to command Apollo 14. Instead, he and his crew swapped missions with the crew of Apollo 13. As it was felt, the commander of the other crew, Alan Shepard, needed more time to train after having been grounded for a long period by an ear problem. Lovell lifted off aboard Apollo 13 on April 11, 1970, with Command Module Pilot Jack Swigert and Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes. He and Hayes were to land on the moon. Apollo 13 was going to be the third flight to the boat. That's it though, all engines. Looks good here, Clyde, go to green. And it was just after about 55 hours into this mission that the explosion occurred. I think Apollo 13 was a very good example of always expecting the unexpected. During a routine cryogenic oxygen tank stir 
in transit to the moon, a fire started inside an oxygen tank. Liquid oxygen rapidly turned into a high-pressure gas which burst the tank and caused the leak of a second oxygen tank. And then, of course, we heard the bang. Uh, the spacecraft rocked back and forth. We didn't know what happened. Uh, we saw lights come on, warning lights come on. We lost our electrical power in one of our buses. Lost two out of three of our fuel cells. They are devices that make electrical power out of oxygen and hydrogen. Uh, and then I saw a gas escaping from the rear end of my spacecraft and noticed that the quantity gauges on my two oxygen tanks, one read zero, and the other one I could actually see the needle go down, uh, something you would never see in the normal usage of oxygen. And that's when the old lead weight went down to the bottom of my stomach, and I thought that we were really in deep trouble. In just over two hours, onboard oxygen was lost, disabling the hydrogen fuel cells that provided electrical power to the command and service module Odyssey. This required an immediate abort of the moon landing mission. The sole objective now was to safely return the crew to Earth. Apollo 13 was the second mission not to use a free return trajectory so that they could explore the western lunar regions. Using the lunar module as a lifeboat providing battery power, oxygen, and propulsion, Lovell and his crew re-established the free return trajectory they had left and swung around the moon to return home. Based on the flight controller's calculations made on Earth, Lovell had to adjust the course twice by manually controlling the lunar module's thrusters and engine. Apollo 13 returned safely to Earth on April 17th. I often wondered what would have happened if Apollo 13 was successful. There was no explosion. We landed on the moon, picked up some rocks, said some forgettable words, and back, got back safely. Eleven or seven successful lunar landings. The history of Apollo 13 would have been swept into the dustbin of space history. Yeah, I wouldn't be here probably to talk about it. This was the same thing the third time. But for years I was very much disappointed, frustrated that I could not land on the moon. This was the end of my active space career, perhaps the active of my naval career, and that's what I wanted to do. But then after the years came by, we, we wrote a book, first of all called Lost Moon, then Apollo 13. I thought to myself, you know, if we had landed on the moon and come back, oh, there, there would be no Houston, we got a problem in our, in our English language. Or, you know, failure is not an option. And I said, uh, there, it didn't bring out really what people could do when there was a crisis. And so it finally determined on me that, uh, that the best thing that could have happened in our space program at that particular time was to have an explosion like this that brought up you know, various things uh, of how talented people are to bring an almost certain catastrophe back to a safe landing. Lovell is now one of only three men to travel to the moon twice. But unlike John Young and Gene Cernan, he never walked on it. 
Lovell accrued over 715 hours in space, and he saw a total of 269 sunrises from space on his Gemini and Apollo flights. This was a personal record that stood until Skylab 3 in July through September of 1973. Apollo 13's flight trajectory gave Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert the record for the furthest distance that humans have ever traveled from Earth. After Apollo 13, I got to work on the board of the Aerospace Museum, tried to contribute as much as I could. I th on March 1, 1973, Captain Lovell retired from the Navy and from the space program to join Bay Houston Towing Company in Houston, Texas. The company was involved in harbor and coast towing, mining, and marketing of peat products for the lawn and garden industry. Lovell was promoted to the position of president and chief executive officer on March 1, 1975. In 1977, Lovell became president of Fisk Telephone Systems in Houston. The company marketed business communications equipment in the southwest United States. On January 1, 1981, he was appointed group vice president, and he eventually retired from the company in 1991. In 1994, Lovell, along with Jeffrey Kluger, wrote a book about the Apollo 13 mission called Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13. It was the basis for the Ron Howard movie Apollo 13. Lovell's first impression on being approached about the film was that Kevin Costner would be a good choice to portray him, given the physical resemblance. But Tom Hanks was cast in the role. Tom Hanks always wanted to be uh, an astronaut. He was a, what we call a closet astronaut, a space enthusiast. And when he heard that the director, Ron Howard, was going to make a movie on Apollo 13, he asked to be part of it. And he said, I will take a big reduction in salary. I think it was down to $12 million, <laughs> something like that. And anyway, uh, he did a tremendous job uh, portraying me in the movie. In order to prepare for the movie, Hanks visited Lovell and his wife at their home in Texas and even flew with Lovell on his private plane. In the film, Lovell has a cameo as the captain of the USS Iwo Jima, the naval vessel that led the operation to recover the Apollo 13 astronauts after their successful splashdown. Lovell can be seen as the naval officer shaking Tom Hanks' hand as Hanks speaks in voiceover in the scene where the astronauts come aboard the Iwo Jima. Filmmakers initially offered to make Lovell's character an admiral aboard the ship, presumably Rear Admiral Donald C. Davis, Commander Task Force 130, who was the senior officer aboard and welcomed them home. However, Lovell said that he retired as a captain and a captain he would be. He was cast as the ship's skipper, Captain Leland E. Kirkamo, along with his wife Marilyn, who also has a cameo in the film. 
Lovell provided a commentary track on both the single-disc and the two-disc special edition DVD, as well as the Blu-ray edition of the movie. In the mid-1990s, Lovell served as the president of the National Eagle Scout Association. He was also recognized by the Boy Scouts of America with their prestigious Silver Buffalo Award. In 1999, the Lovell family opened Lovells of Lake Forest, a fine dining restaurant in Lake Forest, Illinois. The restaurant displayed many artifacts from Lovell's time with NASA, as well as from the filming of Apollo 13. Jim's son, James Lovell III, was the executive chef. Jim sold the restaurant to his son and his wife, Doris, in 2006. One of the ways to uh, keep active is to have hobbies and do things. Uh, we're sitting in a restaurant right now, which uh, with my son I helped build, and he has the restaurant now, but I help him out quite a bit. And the restaurant has three stories to it, so one of the good ways to keep it fit is going up and down the stairs rather than the elevator. During his long career, Lovell served on the board of directors for several organizations, including Federal Signal Corporation in Chicago, Astronautics Corporation of America in his hometown of Milwaukee, and Centel Corporation in Chicago. Lovell also visits colleges and universities, where he gives speeches on his experiences as an astronaut and businessman. He strongly urges students to get involved in science and the space program, and he credits NASA in the 1960s with bringing much of the country together for a common goal. Lovell has received numerous special honors, such as the Presidential Medal for Freedom, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, two Navy Distinguished Flying Crosses, the American Academy of Achievement Golden Plate Award, City of New York Golden Medal, City of Houston Medal for Valor, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Special Trustees Award, the Institute of Navigation Award, the University of Wisconsin's Distinguished Alumni Service Award, the Goddard Memorial Trophy, the General Thomas D. White U.S. Air Force Space Trophy, and the AIAA Haley Astronautics Award, to name a few. Lovell was inducted into the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1993. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 262 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Commander Jim Lovell. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thank you for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Since we last spoke, I have added some more episodes to the Archive Podcast. We now have episodes 1 through 77 available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite pod catchers. 
Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. I'll try to get some more up next month with the goal of catching up with the main podcast RSS feed. But if you just can't wait until that occurs, all of the episodes are available on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the Vostok-level donors. There are 63 so far this year. Vostok donors contribute $10 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Vostok donors. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. Uh, first, I wanted to announce next week I will be out of town, so we're going to have an encore episode that I have picked out, especially for this Apollo 13 series. Now, I want to credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, C-SPAN, NASA Johnson Space Center, Biography.com, and Wikipedia. Well, I wish Jim would have gotten to walk on the moon. I believe he really deserved it. And he might have been able to have gotten another mission if he had pressed the issue. But Marilyn said, no, you've had your chance, and I'm not doing this again. (laughs) So Jim was pretty frustrated for years after not landing on the moon, but I'm sure he was grateful to have made it back alive. Hope you enjoyed that clip I played where Jim ponders what if Apollo 13 was successful. He concluded that an Apollo 13 disaster was what the space program needed at that time in order to show what a fine team NASA had to be able to bring them back home safely. After all, it was unquestionably one of NASA's finest hours. But for me personally, I wish the accident didn't happen. I wanted all the moon landings to succeed, even at the risk of Apollo 13 not being a particularly noteworthy mission. So now, Jim considers Apollo 8 to be the high point of his career. And to me, Apollo 8 was a fantastic mission and one of my favorite missions for the reasons that I covered in the Apollo 8 series I did back in episodes 160 through 171, I think. But once again, I will disagree with Jim. I thought his performance on 13 was exceptional under extremely adverse conditions with the whole world watching. That was probably his finest hour as well. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive six donations to support the podcast over the past week. John Z. donated at the Apollo level. Tom P. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Ingvar H. from Iceland donated at the Vostok level. Daniel D. from Austria donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Chris H. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. And Jonathan C. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our Patreon donors are at 174, with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. And our overall donors for 2018 have reached 296, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. 
Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, it is the new official SRH logo magnet that we're giving away. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put it in the Google's random number generator and got the number for Matthew Pitt. Matthew Pitt, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. Next week will be an encore episode, and the following week we'll continue Apollo 13 with episode 263. So long for now.